Hey, this is Jennifer Helms, and you're listening to Minutes No Limits. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. If passion drives, let reason hold the reins. Okay, um... Welcome to the first episode of the Happiness Hypothesis book summary slash guide that I'm starting. Also, just a reminder, the book intro, I went over that in episode zero of this series, so that's there if you need it. So obviously, you know, happiness is just like any other emotion or whatever. It's a state that we are physically, mentally in, right? Uh, So you kind of have to, if you want to learn about happiness, you kind of have to learn about some psychology. So this chapter starts us off. Um, uh, The author starts by saying like, you know, every, every, we understand pretty much everything better with a metaphor. Um, I mean, that's already science. Like, literally, quote, we understand new or complex things in relation to things we already know. Um, so the author wanted to say that because there's a lot of metaphors in the book. And the one that drives the whole thing is a metaphor about... I guess what kind of drives our actions. And so he starts off by saying that animals made their way into ancient metaphors. Uh, Buddha, for example, compared the mind to a wild elephant. Plato used a similar similar metaphor uh, where he said that the self or the soul is a chariot uh, the calm, rational part, and, um, yeah, the rider basically has to control two horses, and so, and then Sigmund Freud, Freud, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, he's so famous, I can't, I can't mess up his name, Sigmund, Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, he's like the father of psychoanalysis or something, um, He, his model about, like, how the mind works, um, you know, 2,300 years after Plato, he was saying that the mind is divided into three parts, the ego, which is the conscious, rational self, the superego, the conscience, a sometimes too rigid commitment to the rules of society, and the id, which is the desire for pleasure. Lots of it sooner rather than later. Um, So that's a pretty um, popular theory that you've probably heard. But, um, and then, well, basically you'll see the author, he's, his metaphor he likes to use for the mind is a rider and an elephant. But anyways, before we get into that, 
Um, he starts to talk about how, like, in the last third of the century, social scientists have been studying the mechanisms of thinking and decision-making. So that's kind of what he goes to talk about. He says that modern theories about rational choice and information processing don't adequately explain weakness of the will. He likes the elephant and rider metaphor, and I like it too. I think it's pretty simple. Um, I guess an animalistic metaphor works because, you know, when it comes down to it, we are animalistic at times. Um... So basically the key is that you got to understand that the mind is divided into different parts that sometimes conflict. He says our minds are divided in four ways. So the first way is the division of the mind versus the body. Uh, this one's pretty simple. Like, so uh, for example, the nervous system, like... You don't want people to know that you're nervous, but your face may get red. There's the saying, you gotta go when you gotta go. Like, in that sense, the nervous system is completely independent of voluntary or intentional control. Basically, you know, we can't help. Our body just does what it wants sometimes. No matter what we're telling it in our mind. So the second division is between the left brain and the right brain, which you've probably heard of, but basically the less the left hemisphere takes in information from the right half of the world and sends out commands to move the limbs on the right side of the body, and then the right hemisphere does the opposite, and he says nobody knows why the signals cross over that way but it does so in all vertebrates. Also, more the more common knowledge is that the less left, I'm sorry, I can't say left for some reason. The left hemisphere is specialized for language processing and analytical tasks, and the right hemisphere is better at processing patterns in space, which is typically people think of the right brain as like the artistic one. Um, anyways, and then he starts talking about some split brain studies that were done, like, uh, in history, and I guess some guy, like, did it disconnected the two parts of the brain and was doing studies on that. Um, and basically, the author says that split brain studies are important for the book because they are an example of a dramatic way that the basically what they found is that the left brain can make up explanations for what the right brain does even when it doesn't actually know what caused the behavior he adds basically like the left brain is like the writer you know, trying to reason with the right brain. So the third division is between the new and old parts of the brain. So basically it's like talking about the evolution of the human brain. Um, and how like, basically ultimately, 
the limbic system, which was the first part, underlies many of our basic animal instincts. But then as we evolved, we got like our frontal cortex evolved more and we got the thing called the neocortex. Uh, it basically allows us to engage in thinking and planning ahead and decision making like we can, I guess, yeah, like plan ahead instead of only responding to like immediate situations. Um, so, and then also we got the frontal cortex also enabled a great expansion of emotionality in humans. The lower part of the prefrontal cortex is called the orbital frontal cortex. And so that part is active during emotional reactions um and so this is kind of like the divide like between the emotion and the ration rational rationality sorry <laughs> but the author makes a point like it's not like any one is like better than the other or something like he tells the story of like a guy that had his prefrontal cortex damaged and so he wasn't like emotional about anything um and so he's like what do you think happens when these people go into the world? Are they just able to be completely unbiased and just um, get everything done right? And he's like, well, in reality, that's not the case because they, when they think, like, what should I do now? They see a lot of choices, but they don't have any immediate internal feelings of like or dislike. Um, and so basically, in summary, the author says... Human rationality depends critically on sophisticated emotionality. So basically, just about how, going back to the metaphor of the rider and the elephant, like you could say, like, the rider is the neocortex and the orbital, what was it, or, orbital, orbitofrontal cortex is like the elephant. Um, but ultimately, they need to work together. So the fourth division is between the controlled part of the brain and the automatic part. Basically, in the 1990s, psychologists started to realize that the previous information processing models and computer metaphors for how the brain worked just didn't really get the full picture in that there's really two processing systems at work in the mind at all times, the controlled processes and the automatic processes. So basically, you know, with research and stuff, we figured out that, you know, most of our, pro most of what we do is automatic, you know, stuff we don't even think about. Um, most of our actions are completely unconscious. Uh, so like a simple example of how, uh, significant that can be is like subliminal messages um and like apparently for example uh exposure to words related to the elderly makes people walk more slowly so just crazy stuff like that um and then there's an important part about how um it's this is obviously still related to our the evolution of the human brain 
And it talks about how, like, the automatic part is more mature and mature as in, like, it's older than the controlled part. Like, you know, our reasoning and our, ling- or, well, our language processing part of our brain, like, that part is, like, new when you think about, like, the past two million years of, like, um, humans existing and stuff. And so it's saying that the difference in maturity explains why we have computers that are so much better at logic and math than we are, but computers are no match compared to, like, our perceptual perceptual and motor systems. Like, they can't... Robots... We're way better at walking than robots and, like, that sort of thing. So, um, but basically the summary is that the writer, going back to our metaphor, the writer is like the conscious controlled thought and then the elephant is like everything else, the gut feelings, emotions, intuitions that comprise much of the automatic system. Um, so just once again, the important note, like it's not like they're, they're supposed to help each other and the writer evolved to serve the elephant, to be an advisor. Um, and so that kind of relationship of them working together is what enables the, quote, unique brilliance of human beings. Okay, so now's the fun part. Uh, it's going to start talking about, um, quote, three quirks of daily life that illustrate the sometimes complex relationship between the rider and the elephant when they don't work well together. So one of the dilemmas is failures of self-control. This talks about what's called the Walter Michelle experiment, I think. Um, It's an experiment done on kids where um, you like... You can say, here's a plate with one marshmallow, and here's a plate with two marshmallows. I'm going to leave the room, and if you can wait until I get back, then you can have the plate with two marshmallows. Or ring the bell, and I'll come back immediately and give you the one marshmallow. So that was the experiment. And then they, like, followed up on the kids, like, later in life. And apparently, children who were able to overcome stimulus control and delay gratification for a few more minutes were better able to resist temptation as teenagers, focused on their studies, and I guess get into a top university. Um, which, you know, this isn't like, it. it's not like complete science, like, you know, it's not like if your kid doesn't wait that they're doomed, but, you know, just in general. And, uh, so basically, uh, what they found was that one of the strategies that the kids were doing was shifting their attention. So, like, the successful children were those that looked away from the marshmallow or, like, started to think about other activities. Uh, these thinking skills are an aspect of emotional intelligence, an ability to understand and regulate one's own feelings and desires. So why this is useful is because he says, once you understand the power of stimulus control, you can use it to your advantage by changing the stimuli in your environment and avoiding undesirable ones. 
or, you know, filling your consciousness with thoughts about their less tempting aspects. So, which, in this case, that's what the children were doing because they couldn't move. Like, they, you know, they were just doing what they were told. They can't do anything about the marshmallow, but they can try to ignore it. Um, so, just playing mind games with yourself in a way. But the idea is that the writer can begin to change what the elephant will want in the future. Honestly, in other words, it's just like practicing self-discipline uh, and doing what's good for you. Another dilemma are what could be referred to as mental intrusions. Um, um, the author starts talking about it from a story from Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and it starts talking about something called the imp, which is basically like if you're on a cliff, the imp is like when your brain tells you like jump. When just like those crazy things, like he, one example he gives, like if he's sitting at a dinny, a dinner party, dinny, a dinner party, a fancy dinner party, and it's like the part of him that says like, oh, like say a cuss word or like you know, I guess like the part that just wants to cause trouble, if you could say. Um, I guess a social psychologist, Dan Wagner, kind of was studying the imp, um, and. I guess it's a part of the automatic processing, which isn't really a shocker. Um, he explains the effect called the ironic process of mental control, um, which is kind of hard without giving the explanation or the example he gives, which is like um, whenever someone tells you, like, for example, don't think of a white polar bear. Um, then you're going to start thinking a white, about, about a white polar bear. And the reason is because, like, the automatic processes of your brain, like, continually check in with you. Like, am I not thinking about the white bear? And then, like, because of that, the act of monitoring it brings in the thought. So it's just kind of conflicting. Um, yeah. And then also people that have studied this found that mental intrusions are often sexual or aggressive. Um, and I'm surprised he doesn't really talk about the importance of all this, but I guess one of the ways it's significant is just like, you know, when you have those crazy thoughts, like you kind of have to be aware, like they're just crazy thoughts, like, and to just ignore them, I guess, and not act on them. A third dilemma is difficulty of winning an argument. And so this basically talks about the fact that like whenever we know something's wrong or we argue that something's wrong, we're like, I know it's wrong. I'm just having a hard time explaining why. Uh, and it's because moral judgment is like aesthetic judgment. When you see a painting, you usually know instantly and automatically if you like it. And then when someone asks you why, you just kind of say the first thing that comes to mind. Like, oh, because it has this certain color or whatever. Um, and so he, the author is saying that moral, moral arguments are the same. 
Your feelings come first, and then reasons are invented on the fly. And that's basically why whenever you're arguing with someone, even if you, like, defeat their argument, they're still not going to change their mind because it wasn't about their argument. It was about what they felt, the judgment that they made long before they gave you any reasoning. Um, and so back to our metaphor, the elephant is what's making the snap judgments. And then the writer starts to act as its lawyer, defending it. So the result is that we end up paying too much attention to the conscious verbal part. And then we, and then we're surprised when urges and wishes and temptations emerge, even though that's what was driving it all in the first place. And once again, the author urges that the writer and the elephant both have their strengths and special skills. The rest of this book is about how um, we can get along with each other, chapters 3 and 4, find happiness, chapters 5 and 6, grow psychologically and morally, chapters 7 and 8, and find purpose and meaning in our lives, chapters 9 and 10. I just think rereading this now is so ironic because the whole discussion about why it's so hard to change people's minds just reminds me of the racism that's been especially going on in America right now. Um, it reminds me of the audiobook I did by Ibram X. Kendi and how basically in the book he's saying like, there's just, it's really not worth it to try and argue with someone that's being racist um so yeah crazy how that kind of fit in here so I guess it's just we should try to pay more attention to where where actually is our arguments coming from what are what is it that we're actually feeling <laughs>